0: Hi listeners, Alex here, assistant producer for the Sausage of Science podcast. Before we begin, a quick note of warning. This week's episode contains some explicit language. Listener discretion is advised. Hey Chris.
1: Hey, Kira! I thought we were
0: already recording. We are, but I don't know if any of that's going to get included. And we didn't do our hay, and we have to start with the hay. It's what we do.
1: It's our trademark.
0: It is. Maybe we should actually trademark it at this point. So have you recovered from your trip this weekend?
1: Uh, yeah, I had Saturday. I, so we actually went to LSU to visit on Friday afternoon. We did a haunted tour, which was cool and ate some etouffee which was yummy then we got up super early and did a tour of the engineering facility and then of lsu campus everyone by and large mindful of the social distancing and the Mm. mask wearing but you could see some cracks defiant (laughs) parents lsu people they were exceptional They were mindful. They were respectful. They did everything right. They reminded people. There were still some parents who were like, you know, here's what I got to say. If these employees and then grad students and the peoples that they have given the tours who are frankly students can be respectful of us and wear a mask, can't the fucking parents on the tours be respectful of these undergraduates and put a mask on also?
0: As we have said many times on the show now, since we've been recording for the most part through the pandemic, except for a little bit of a break in the summer, that we've seen so many mixed messages early on about masks where like the CDC still wasn't sure and they weren't being solid and that people don't realize like that's how science works. And so they just lost all faith and trust because we've seen science play out in real time through the media. And so the messaging of my mask protects you and not my mask protects me, that has not stuck well with people.
1: So in one case, there was this dude who I'm eyeballed <laughs>
0: <Uh-oh>.
1: eyeballing <laughs> in the thing. He's this, this father who like, when they specifically said, we need everyone to keep their masks on at all times, just sat there with his mask off. He did put his chin diaper on once everybody got up, you know, where, you know, people sort of wear them on their chin and then they sort of inch them up over their mouth so that their nose looks like a penis hanging over the top. And occasionally (laughs) they pull it up over their nose. He did pull that up enough for me to see that his mask said Trump 2020 on it. So...
0: Which is also just ironic given the administration's stance on mask wearing. They shouldn't be, there shouldn't be his logo on any mask.
1: So anyway, uh, and then we went to visit Mike the tiger.
0: Wait, so is it a statue? I mean, not SEC, I know none of this. I know that they are the LSU Tigers, but is it a statue or like a person in a, in a tiger suit?
1: Well, there is a statue, but no, it's a tiger. Wait, Kara. wait, wait, no,
0: no, wait, 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 no. They have a living tiger?
1: Yeah, Mike the way- is the eighth in a line of tigers. Wait, they seriously
0: the have a living tiger? I did yeah, not know this. Real-
1: with real cute, fuzzy tiger paws and, and everything. He looked real fuzzy. But I, he reminded me of my dog. I wanted to go in and give him a squeeze and play with his tiger paws. Is
0: it a nice enclosure so we can feel better about it being a captive tiger?
1: It is a nice habitat that he has adjacent to the stadium that's so loud it registered on the Richter scale. For that can't one of their be games. good for the tiger. I'm thinking maybe not but otherwise it's a lovely habitat and these taken care of by the veterinary school there LSU as that's good LSU alum are quick to jump on Facebook to reassure everyone
0: I find that one it's shocking it's not you know Bama doesn't have an elephant a vial of red algae (laughs) that they bring I know Which they but should. Be so the vial awesome. of algae would be. The fantastic. vial
1: of red algae. <laughs> spread it on the fields, so people can slip it. That is the red tide.
0: If you ever, if you ever get to be a dean, provost, anything in upper Alabama, higher admin, this is your platform, Chris. The I vial. Know. of Well, red you algae.
1: remember I, I when we did the uh, evolution series, we had a crimson tide shirt, which had a picture of the real crimson tide which is a dinoflagellite. and of course the joke was lost on everyone except those science geeks out there who are like oh my god is that the dinoflagellate no, <laughs> no, <one said> <laughs> no one said that no one
0: said that no one said that no one said that anyway but
1: no we have uh yeah i was i was i was doing a little ranting i'm like if they're going to have a real tiger here they should have some like tiger conservation thing going on too because that's a little dicey we do have tide for tusks a conservation thing on campus and also, no living pachyderms on our campus to be ah. ethically dubious about.
0: Okay. So, ha,
1: LSU. Ha, <laughs> like higher, slightly higher moral ground, <laughs> albeit way down in the swamp.
0: You know, literally.
1: We had some unfortunate news uh, last week about one of our HBA members.
0: We we did. This is you know, really upsetting and tragic. Uh, Dr. Gary James passed away, I believe, just on this past Friday, uh, which would have been October 16th, um, given on whenever day this actually records. And it seems sudden. And I think everyone... Who is involved with HBA that listens to this podcast knows Gary James as the person who moves along the motions during the HBA business meetings, and HBAs will just not be the same without him there.
1: They won't. We say that in good humor because he was a person who always had a, a sense of humor that was mm-hmm. obvious. But for especially for students and and the younger members who who don't know him for more than that, we. We definitely are planning though we don't know who yet we're planning a memorial episode. We may have to wait till people are not so shocked and yeah hurt by yeah, is- the loss of someone so close to all of us and so active in our organization.
0: Mm-hmm. But
1: there will be an episode when someone is willing, you know, and, and able to talk to us about his contribution to the field for sure.
0: Yeah, so we'll definitely bring folks on. And I mean, I heard the news from my graduate student, Alexander Nuclew, who did her master's under Gary James. And so he's another one of those people who had a broad, broad impact, not only in his research, but also his mentorship. Um, So this is another one that hits really close to home. One of the
1: things I want to point out is we do these legacies, in some cases for people whose names are well-known, but maybe we need to unpack them. And then, you know, in other cases for folks who we know, but mm-hmm. whose work may not be as well known as it should be. And, and we're a vehicle for the Human Bio Association, but I've, I'm reminded in, in talking about him of the many people through COVID or through whatever who pass and literally leave almost nothing behind, but whose impact is great. I, I just want to take this moment because I have a forum to say the name, Jody Baumgarten. Jody is a friend of mine who also passed on Friday. She she was not a human biologist, but she did suffer from Huntington's disease, a disease that is hugely biologically and emotionally impactful. And, and I was going to do a little research on it so I could like tie it up in a nice bow. But I'll, I'll admit that I've just been wallowing in memories and, mm-hmm. I, and I have it. What I do want to say is I used to work in the music industry. For those who haven't picked up on this along the way, I worked in music distribution and I had a band and Jody, I met it at work. She was a friend of mine from work. Uh, we dated a little bit. She was a wild child, right? She was a person who, where I may have thought of myself and looked edgy on the outside. I mean, she wasn't someone you would look at and be like, that child is crazy. She lived extreme. She was a lot of fun, loved to dance and loved to sing. And she was more than I could handle in a really good way. Mm -hmm. I loved her to death. When it became apparent that I could not keep up with her, we remained friends. She was one of the few people I dated who was just super straightforward and genuine and authentic. My wife was good friends with her. They used to dance at my band shows together, mm-hmm. which was just so sweet and so cool. But what I discovered along the way was part of what made her who she was, was she was embracing life, but she wasn't interested in having long-term relationships or having kids because her mother had Huntington's disease, which is, gets passed on. She didn't know if she had the gene mm-hmm. and didn't want to know. She was afraid it would ruin her life but she was afraid of having kids and passing it on and having kids who also had that fear. Hmm. So instead, she burned candle at both ends. And then when her symptoms became apparent, she basically moved to Florida and went into hiding. Hmm. And I haven't actually heard from her in 20 years. I tried calling her a few times over the years. And I know from other friends who sort of basically arrived on her doorstep to force her to talk, that her voice was tremulous and she was mm. shaking and losing weight and didn't want people to see her in decline. So she spent the second half of her life in decline. And during the COVID lockdown, she lost a lot of weight and she passed on Friday. And I got that news while I was at LSU and you know, sort of held on to that, but then it sort of settled on me yesterday. So I, I just wanted to say her name and say that story because I have a forum to do it for someone out there for whom there are just a few of us who remember her. And it's always everyone has people in their life like that. And they are impactful, even if they don't get their own memorial episode of Sausage of Science or something like that.
0: Yeah, well, thank you for sharing that story. It's tough. You're working through it, basically, as you're talking on the podcast. So yeah, thank you. Should we discuss the show? Or do you want to talk about Huntington's a bit more?
1: Uh, let's discuss the show, because I didn't do my homework on that. So That's
0: okay. Uh, also, I didn't either, and now I feel like a jerk for just like, let's move on. Uh-
1: <laughs> There's never an easy transition from death, but fortunately, no. Jody was a fucking jackass, and I loved her for that, too, so oh, right. she would be fine. Also right, Jody, with
0: Like, we're moving on.
1: Yes, yes, <laughs> we're moving
0: on. Uh, so today, we're starting one of three or four episodes that we will be doing um, featuring the producers for this very podcast, the people behind the scenes who make us sound good and do all of the heavy lifting when it comes to editing.
1: We get to make Teresa sound good today, don't we?
0: We do. And then hopefully she doesn't have to edit herself. That's, I I really do hope one of the other ones (laughs) picks that one up. Yeah, well, you know, (laughs) we all
1: had to edit ourselves at least the first few times when we started doing it. Painful, isn't it?
0: Oh, it's the worst. But She Teresa,
1: edited herself when she was on the show with uh, Zane.
0: I was just about to say that this is not our first time having Teresa on the show. This is the second time that Teresa will be on our show.
1: And that time we didn't get to talk to her about as glorious of a person as she is. So mm-hmm. today
0: it's all we her. get
1: to devote... The whole time to Teresa's gloriousness.
0: Yeah. So Teresa is currently a postdoc at Dartmouth under or with Zanita Thayer, uh, but she'll be starting a tenure track job this coming January at WashU in St. Louis, my old stomping grounds.
1: That is so cool. She was a part of the Shawar team. She's got her fingers in lots of human bio projects. She's super, super humble. She's a humble rock star, frankly. And
0: she she gets shit done. Like she She is a ball. It's very impressive. No.
1: But she's also part of this COVID issue,
0: which was along with Saint Ther. But that was the project that we were talking about when we interviewed them, or at least. But yeah, so let's yep, bring yep. her on. So she's not. Let's do that. Concerned about waiting in the waiting room so very, very long.
1: There she is.
0: Hello. Hi.
1: The person <laughs> of the half hour.
0: <laughs> How are you doing?
1: Oh, Kara's cold.
0: I am cold because I refuse to turn the heat on in my house. It's like forty-six outside, and I'm still refusing to turn the heat on.
2: We had snow here a couple of days ago, <laughs> Luckily, not, not in my apartment, but like in
0: town at a higher elevation. I'm just, I'm not ready for this. I, just, I cannot wait. I'm like desperate for winter and snow. I love bundling up like this.
1: Teresa, tell us about you. You know how the show starts, right? You've yeah. heard a million origin stories. <laughs> yeah. We would love to hear your origin story. Tell us about what goes into the sausage of Teresa.
2: Yeah, well, my origin story is not very original, especially after hearing so many on the podcast. Uh, so I knew I've, I've always loved science from an early age. Actually, the first job I can remember wanting was a marine biologist. So I always loved biology. And this was really cemented in high school. So I had a really amazing biology and AP biology teacher.
1: Where did you go to high school?
2: Uh, Bainbridge High School. It's near uh, Bainbridge Island is where I spent most of my childhood near Seattle. Ooh. So then I went to Notre Dame where Kara is, and I knew when I entered as an undergrad that I wanted to major in biology, and I was vaguely aware of anthropology at this point, so I knew it was probably something I'd be interested in, Uh, so I wanted to take a class, and I managed my second semester there to get into the intro to anthropology class with Jim McKenna, which of course was amazing, and so after that, I knew I had to keep taking classes, so I I picked up the minor and finished the coursework for that, Uh, wanted to keep taking classes, so I became a double major. It was really interesting because I I really noticed that Anthropology was always the fun work, so that's always the fun readings and assignments that I would say for after organic chemistry or some of the hardcore, you know, science stuff. That was always anthropology was uh, the fun reward, and I also did some directed readings with Augustine Fuentes, which helped introduce me to some theoretical frameworks like niche construction theory, which still inform a lot of my thinking today. So that's really uh, important time. Can we yeah. pause
1: there for one for you to tell our listeners because he's retired. Many of us know who Jim is, but not everybody does. So let's unpack Jim McKenna and then tell us what it was like having him as your first anthro professor. I'm really curious.
2: Oh, he's amazing. I think he converted so many people to pick up majors or minors at Notre Dame uh, since he taught the intro class. But uh, Jim McKenna amazing anthropologist known for his work with co-sleeping with babies. He did a lot of work at a sleep lab where he looked at the physiological patterns between uh, moms and babies and supporting the idea of of co-sleeping as if it's done safely with breastfeeding and and proper safety protocols could actually support the health of mom and babies and maybe reduce the risk of SIDS. It was really cool work. And also he's just an amazing, very likable guy and a great teacher. So it was a great experience overall. It just really convinced me that this was a great field to go into.
0: The most
1: guileless anthropologist I've ever met.
0: I think the hardest thing for me in all this is I am in Jim's old office, and there is no way in the world I could ever fill Jim McKenna's shoes, but also to mention shoes. He is still famous on Notre Dame campus for his tap tap class. (laughs) Yep, he would teach this tap dancing class and like people would love it and he would love it. I never got to take it, I was so bummed. But he would tap dance for us at the end of the term as a reward for surviving the term. He would do a tap dance routine for us and it was wonderful. Before COVID, students would often stop by my office and be like, you're not Jim. I'm like, nope. (laughs) And there's no way I ever can be.
2: Anyway, so Notre Dame. Notre Dame, uh, yeah I guess the last part of that is just I had a really great opportunity after my junior year to do an NSF-RU in bioarchaeology with doctors Sue Sheridan and then us are also, also uh, Jamie Ollinger and Leslie Gregorica at Notre Dame and this is completely different than what I do now but I was working with bones from a charnel house at a Bronze Age site called Bobadroth and so I spent the summer looking at humeri to determine whether they'd been intentionally cremated or accidentally burnt. And I got to continue doing this work into my senior year at Notre Dame uh, and actually attend and present at the AAPA conference in Minneapolis that year, which was just a really incredible experience and really helped to kind of convince me that independent research was what I liked to do. And then I got to that point where you had to choose, you know do I wanna take the MCAT and actually go to med school like it originally planned or continue to pursue research? So I, I chose to, to pursue research. I knew I was interested in public health still, but I was convinced that doing a more holistic biocultural anthropological research might be a better way to get at the questions I was interested in. For the PhD, I went to University of Oregon to work with Josh Snodgrass as part of the Schwar Health and Life History Project, which I know you've had Sam Urlacher on to talk about that. So it's the ongoing project examining links between lifestyle change and health among indigenous Shuar of Amazonian Ecuador. And I'd taken a parasitology course at Notre Dame that I just loved. I wanted to keep working with parasites. And given the work that was going on with the Shore Health and Life History Project and human health and also parasites, it was just a really great fit. So I ended up going to Oregon and did my dissertation on lifestyle and physiological factors that impact parasitic disease patterns. And now I'm at Dartmouth College doing a postdoc with Zane Thayer, which has been a wonderful experience as well.
1: You have had the most perfect trajectory I could possibly mm-hmm. think of in terms of who you studied with and the opportunities yeah. you've had.
2: I really lucked out. Really, really <laughs> An lucked
1: amazing, out. amazing, amazing. So you say it's not unique, but I think we get in the habit of thinking like the experience you've just described is the norm. And almost every time we talk to potential grad students or grad students or postdocs or whatever, they're like, oh, I'm nothing." Typical one I did. That is actually the norm. Getting that, having Lockstep, breathing the yeah. rarefied air of all those people along the way is, yeah. in fact more unique. And, and so that, that's awesome.
2: That's true. I guess more the attending to go to med
0: school and then being brought to the dark side and loving anthropology. Is more <laughs> the don't undersell yourself. Perhaps, you know, getting Jim McKenna as a professor was a bit of luck, but then everything after that is you and you pursuing it and you doing the work to get to where you're at. So don't undersell yourself.
1: It's not luck. We well know that.
0: And also, another part of your trajectory is very personal to Chris and I, as being a producer for this very show. Mm -hmm. Sounds good. What in the world possessed you to apply for this?
2: Well, a couple main reasons. Uh, One is my love for the Human Biology Association. So ever since I started going to the meetings, I've made some really great connections to the HBA, and I just felt so supported by the organization as a whole. And so I was looking for ways to give back, and this seemed like a great way to do that. Uh, Second, I absolutely love podcasts. I listen to podcasts all the time. So learning more about podcast production, so learning how the sausage is made in podcasting, not just science, if you will. Well done. Um, Well done. How to do it. (laughs) So that was a, a really appealing aspect of the position as well. And then learning these skills seemed like a really good
0: tool to use in future science communication. You've listened to, I don't even know how many episodes, or at least edited how many episodes at this point. What sort of insights do you think being a producer has given you from being the behind the scenes stuff that doesn't necessarily make it to air?
2: That varies so much by who's editing in terms of how many of like the sides you leave in and the quirks. But I do notice when I listen to other podcasts, as a producer, I'll I'll notice things that I would have cut if I was editing that podcast, (laughs) like little asides I leave in or ums or so I feel like it's made me a little more judgmental when I listen to other podcasts.
1: Yeah, I'm way more judgmental about other podcasts because of doing this. I'm just like, oh, my God, you're killing me here.
0: (laughs) Anyway, so the next step for you is really, really exciting and that you're going to be starting a tenure track position at WashU U in St. Louis in the anthropology department there, which I am also deeply familiar with. So you and I have like two institutions Mm -hmm. in common right now. So tell us about the position and when do you move? So yeah, I'm really excited. I'm
2: looking forward to joining such an amazing department. So working as a human biologist, I'll be collaborating with EA Quinn, sharing some lab space, which I'm really looking forward to. I start in January. I'll be moving to St. Louis in December, although the exact timeline's kind of up in the air now, uh, since we're looking for a place to live and house Mm. hunting turns out to be really tricky during a pandemic. But sometime in December, hopefully I'll make that transition. So I'm looking forward to it. So will
1: you be joining the Anthrolactology podcast?
2: No, I don't think so at this point, but I'd definitely be open to to working with her in the future.
0: Right, so you sent us a couple of papers. One focused on parasites and immune system, and then another one relating things more to COVID. But let's start with the non-COVID one to begin with, and that one was in PLOS One. And it's called Market Integration and Soil-Transmitted Helminth Infection Among the Shuar of Amazonian Ecuador. This might end up relating back to Notre Dame in some ways because of that parasitology course, but I guess how did you get interested between this relationship with market integration and parasite
2: infection? As I mentioned, the Shuar Health and Life History Project is one of the main reasons I chose to go to Oregon, uh, in large part because I really want to do that comprehensive look at the biocultural factors that are influencing parasitic infection. So not just the biological symptoms and the outcomes of infection, like you might as a medical professional, but more of the lifestyle and behavioral factors, including lifestyle change, that might influence your risk of getting infected in the first place. So the Choir are a really interesting group to look at this for a couple of reasons. Um, first, they have really high rates of parasite infections. So we've consistently found that about 60% of our participants are infected, mm. uh, mostly with large roundworm and whipworm. And then second, they're experiencing really rapid lifestyle changes associated with market integration, which is the degree to which people consume from and produce for a market economy. So this varies between cultures and societies, but it tends to include things like increased consumption of market foods and more agriculture, more travel. So these are all things that can impact health. And so I was really interested in looking at this variation and how this might impact infection patterns among the schwar. So looking at household levels, so before we looked at regional comparisons, but market integration is so nuanced. I was really interested in looking not just at between different regions, but kind of drilling down and looking at Mm. communities, but even within communities at the household level. So how do these factors associated with living a more or less market integrated lifestyle impact infection patterns? Roundworm is one I'm familiar with. (laughs) Whipworm, I am not. What's whipworm? Yeah, they're both helminths. So those are intestinal parasitic worms that live in your gut. And so roundworm's uh, more of a passive feeder, just kind of hangs out there and just kind of absorbs nutrients. Whereas whipworm, furrows into your intestines a bit. Uh, And it's called a whipworm because it looks like a whip. Like it's very thin on one side and thick on the other. That's why it's called whipworm. Does it end up like perforating the intestines or just kind of nestle in there? It can, it kind of depends, you know? Uh, So you can get some blood in the stool sometimes if they've got like really heavy infection, it's a little too intense. Sorry, I know.
1: So is it, a, is, it, is it digging around in poop type of study?
2: <laughs> yes, that is the glamorous part of my work. <laughs> the best way to diagnose is getting fecal samples. So people think we're pretty weird. We give them cups and tell them to bring us some fresh fecal samples in the morning. But since the parasite infections are so high in the area, people are very aware of it and so are generally very open to participating in the studies because they want that information. So what did the poop tell you? <laughs> So for the study, I, like I mentioned, I was interested in looking at lifestyle factors linked with infection risk, and so I was looking specifically at elements of household construction. So I hypothesized that people who are living in less market integrated houses would have higher infection rates, just because they might be exposed to more sources of infection, and I wanted to, to narrow that down a little bit and look at specific elements of household construction, so namely floor material, water type, and bathroom type that I thought might be most directly linked with transmission of these parasites. So to test this, I, with the help from my amazing teammates in the Shore Health and Life History Project, collected these stool samples we've been talking about, but also lifestyle data. So I got interview questions on uh, participant-reported aspects of their house. So they were talking about how their house was constructed, including these building materials. And so I had 620 participants over six field seasons I prep to analyze these samples in the field to look for signs of infection. This is actually one of the reasons that people are very interested in working with us, is because I do it right there. We're able to work with local healthcare providers and pharmacies to help treat infected individuals if they're interested in that at no cost to the participant, which is one of the reasons people are pretty interested in, in collaborating with us. And then, in terms of the results, as I expected, I did find that individuals from more market integrated households, so they scored higher on a composite style of life score of household construction, they had significantly lower odds of infection and lower roundworm and and whipworm infection intensities. So what that means is that if you live in a more market integrated household, you were less likely to be infected in the first place, but you were also less likely to have heavy infections with a lot of parasites at once. That's what I expected to see. When I looked at those specific elements of the household construction, I thought might be linked with infection. So the water source, the floor material in the bathroom type, the results were more mixed. So I found that individuals who lived in households with floors of wood instead of dirt had lower odds of infection and lower infection intensities for whipworm. And that participants who were using water from a well or piped in from a spring, instead of using unfiltered water from a river or a stream had lower roundworm infection intensities. So that's also what I expected to see, but there was, it was interesting that there were these species differences and also yeah. that bathroom type was not a significant predictor of infection patterns. So overall, this is pretty consistent with what we know about how these infections spread. So the parasite eggs, which are microscopic, so you can't see them. So they're in the water or they're in the dirt on your floor and they might get on your hands or get the water you drink or get on your food. And then you're ingesting those eggs without knowing it. And they're yeah. getting to your gut then and you know, becoming adult worms and you're becoming infected that way. So overall, what I think these findings suggest is that if there are limited resources to invest in household construction, if you're trying to break these transmission pathways, it might suggest that focusing on replacing dirt floors and constructing pipes or wells might be a good route to go and be the most effective way to break transmission pathways for these really common parasites among the schwar. Then in terms of bathroom type, though, which I thought was really interesting, I think that it might not have been significant because there's just a general lack of sewage or septic systems in the communities I was working in. So most of the participants, actually 98% of my sample, were using latrines outside of the household and mostly without running water. So in the future, you know, after the pandemic ends and I could finally go back into the field, I'd love to collect more data from Shwara at higher levels of market integration. Uh, so maybe have access to indoor plumbing and bathrooms with running water and see if that becomes a significant predictor and might actually be protected as well as we might expect.
1: So I wanted to sort of break down or dig more into the weeds of this not just the methodology of poop collecting, but the team approach, right? So you said mm-hmm. this was over six field seasons. It's a fairly big team, but I know not everybody's down there at the same time. So can you give us a better sense of who did what? What was your specific role? When you say six seasons, do you mean of data collection in general, or have you been down there six seasons in a row and done all of this? Like, What have you done specifically? Right.
2: So I've been down there five of the six seasons. So the first season that I missed um, was a smaller portion of the sample. In terms of the fecal sample collection, it was either me or uh, my colleague who wrote the COVID paper, you can hopefully get into later, um, Tara Sivan-Robbins, an amazing colleague. Uh, who does a lot of similar research to me. So the two of us were the ones who collected all the fecal samples and analyzed them and Mm -hmm. trained in parasitology to do that. Uh, In terms of the other, like collecting the covariate data on participant demographics and also collecting those interviews on the household information that was kind of spread out evenly between the team. Um, As you've mentioned, it did very year to year uh, Mm -hmm. who went as, that's one of the things I liked about the project a lot is that the team model, you're able to collect a lot more than you could just by yourself, you have people working with you. It's a really good cycle in terms of when you come in. So when I came, when I started as a graduate student, my first field season was basically just learning the ropes. So I, I was helping out on more senior personnel's projects and seeing how things worked in the ground, because you might have an idea of what you want to do, but until you get into the field and see how mm. things actually work, it's hard to know whether or not that's feasible. So really it's having that experience of actually being involved in data collection for other people's projects while formulating my own ideas and my own dissertation project. And then also just, you know, you become more senior and then you have people helping you as they're learning the ropes to collect data. And plus then we're all in each other's publications. And so it's just a very collaborative, everyone benefits. I think it works pretty well in terms of learning how things work
0: and developing a a project that you can actually carry out.
1: I love that model.
0: It seems like the results and some of the possible ways of trying to reduce infection uh, among the Shwara population, you know, with different bathrooms and plumbing and and latrines and all of that, it reminds me a bit of Alex Brewis' work in India and how, Mm -hmm. you know, studying the stigma around different sorts of practices when it comes to latrine use and how people come in and like, right, do this and all infection will be, you know, cured and gone. And it's not something that is a culturally appropriate model for that location and the people that it impacts. Um, So I was kind of curious of when you have these suggestions of how they can reduce infectious burden, how is that taken by the schwar and and what sort of policy or steps are they thinking of taking to try to reduce the burden? So try to do it at a couple of different levels. So
2: one, as I mentioned, we work with people on an individual level to help facilitate treatment if they want it, and they, they generally do. And we provide information so we've in the past written up our results we do community presentations and try to revisit communities to share our results and then that can be used to help advocate for future healthcare interventions uh, so from ngos from the ecuadorian government to get more funding for projects so it kind of scales up and goes to different, mm. different levels Personally, I had planned to return to Ecuador this past summer to present these results. So I have a winter grant engaged anthropology grant to actually revisit and share this dissertation work. And of course, then COVID happened, so I couldn't go. But hopefully I'll go next summer if it's safe to do so. So I plan to go back to the communities and physically do presentations and also work with my co-authors and Schwarz collaborators to write up the results to present to community leaders. Uh, and then also as a, kind of a, a cool part of this grant. I'm actually going to bring in some teaching microscopes. So since I'm doing the microscopic work, like right there, people are generally really interested and want to look. And so I'm going to buy some teaching microscopes, which are pretty affordable, and some some teaching slides and materials to make slides from plant material or insects, and then go into the schools, the community schools that we partner with and do a demonstration and hopefully leave all that
0: material there uh, for their use in the future. Everybody take note. What Teresa just said is an excellent example of a very specific broader impact, and it's fantastic. Uh, that's the kind of thing that like should be written into every grant. That's that's brilliant. Thank you for sharing.
1: Kudos for thinking ahead about the interest people really do have.
0: Teresa, what you have done is an excellent example of a really important broader impact that has an impact. One credit
2: to She helped me develop the idea, so c- kudos to Felicia for helping me with that. Nice, good shout out.
1: <laughs> Let's talk about another paper that's on its way out. I thought this was out. It says not quite out yet, but accepted. I thought the it's whole thing issue... It's accepted.
2: We, we just signed all the paperwork, so hopefully, maybe it'll be out by the time this airs. Who knows? Got Fingers gotcha. crossed.
1: Old friends meet a new foe: a potential role for immune priming parasites in mitigating. COVID-19 morbidity and mortality. This sounds super cool. So give us the highlights of this study.
2: This is more of a theory paper since yeah. you know I'm not conducting field work right now. Uh, so this is written with my brilliant collaborator who I mentioned, uh, Dr. Tara Sipon-Robbins, and she's an assistant professor at University of Colorado in Colorado Springs. So we were just talking about these immune patterns that we see with uh, the severe COVID-19 cases, including the cytokine storms we've all heard about in the news. Mm-hmm. And so we started wondering whether we might see these same types of symptoms in populations like we work with, like the Shuar, where you see endemic parasitic infections. So I don't want to go too deep into the weeds with immunology, but we know that parasites, like the ones I study among the Shuar, so these helminths, these intestinal parasitic worms, that they activate a branch of the immune system that dampens inflammation. And Mm -hmm. parasites do this to keep their host from expelling them. Mm -hmm. So they help, they do this immunoregulation, parasites have also been linked with decreased ACE2 receptor expression. And ACE2 receptors are the receptors that the SARS-CoV-2 virus uses to enter human cells to cause COVID-19. So that Hmm. also seems important. So we hypothesize in this paper that immune activity linked with helminth infections specifically may decrease the risk of severe COVID-19 symptoms, like these cytokine storms, like these really inflammatory reactions that can be lethal. this hasn't been directly tested. This is all hypothetical
0: at this point. It reminded me of a podcast, which I believe was Radiolab many, many years ago about hookworm. And then also the history of hookworm of like people calling people in the South lazy. And it turns out that there was like rampant hookworm infection causing anemia. And so it started with that and ended with this guy who had really bad- Jasper Lawrence. There it is, Lawrence. A really bad, (laughs) severe seasonal allergies, like debilitating seasonal allergies. And he had read something about how possibly being infected with hookworm could cure your seasonal allergies. So he like- traveled through the world walking through open-air latrines barefoot in order to infect himself with hookworm, finally got infected, came back to the US, said his allergies were cured and has been harvesting his own hookworms and sending them mm-hmm. off in the mail to people. And so that has not been proven that hookworm cures allergies. I spoke with my friend who's an immunologist. and so I'm like, clarify this for me so I don't misrepresent anything. Hookworm does not cure allergies. And so I want you to very explicitly (laughs) make a comment about tapeworm infections in COVID and what people should and should not take away from this theory. (laughs) Yes. So yes, I'm really glad you brought this up because I get this question a lot when I teach about
2: this or when I give talks about parasites and immune regulation. And I want to make it very clear I am not advocating going out and trying to infect yourself with a parasite to reduce your risk of allergies or COVID-19 or anything else. Uh, for a couple of reasons. First, parasites are generally not good. Parasite infections can lead to a broad range of negative health outcomes. So for example, uh, if, you have, if you have heavy infections, so mild infections tend to be you know not too bad or asymptomatic, but you can easily get a heavy infection which can lead to nutritional deficiencies like anemia. And if you have really heavy infections, so, you know, the, the parasites I work with are in the gut, that can lead to intestinal blockages or organ failure. And sometimes you can die. So not often, but it can happen. So there is some dangers here. Uh, and but then, wait a
1: minute, if you don't die, won't it cure you of COVID-19 and you'll <laughs> just be totally fine?
2: It's a Big risk. <laughs> We'd also, we could not test it. Uh, so then, the answer is no. Uh, well, part of that too is a lot of these studies that have been done looking at the relationship between parasite and immune regulation are in uh, populations where you have endemic infection. So that means you're being exposed all the time, including when you're small, when you're a child and your immune system is developing. So if you get infected when you're older and your immune system's already been developing for decades, you know who's to say how your body's going to respond to this brand new infection that you haven't encountered before? So that's also a risk. And then sort. Karen mentioned these trials. They have been trials, actually, um, medical trials, besides this guy going out infecting himself. They have done clinical trials with healthy people Well, they'll try to give them controlled parasite infections, usually with whipworm, to see if it can uh, counter like really negative symptoms associated with serious autoimmune diseases or you know, Crohn's disease, for example. And so far from my reading of those studies, it seems to be uh, pretty mixed results at best. So this definitely does not seem to be a silver bullet to... Fix. Wait a minute.
1: So you're telling me that the fecal transplant that I have scheduled might not work because (laughs) I'm an adult living in an industrialized, highly sanitary area. And
2: so, yeah, what I would argue, in my opinion, it seems like a better strategy rather than trying to infect yourself with a parasite might be for researchers to look to see exactly how parasites are regulating immune activity doing these anti-inflammatory actions and then synthesizing those types of molecules to use rather than giving yourself a parasite.
1: Your iron's in many, many fires. So what, what is next for you? We've, we've talked about your job. What is the line or the lines of research that you'll be pursuing and who will you be doing it with?
2: Right, so I'm continuing the, sh- the schwar work uh, as soon as I can get back, hopefully. I'd love to collaborate with Sam, Sam Locker. We talked about on, the, on the podcast before as well as other members of the schwar team. Since Sam works with child growth, we've talked a bit about looking more uh, parasite infection, um, more directly coupled with his measures of energy usage in kids. Trying to look at costs of infection would be really interesting. Uh, and then also this new project I briefly mentioned earlier with Tara, my mm-hmm. co-author on this COVID-19 paper. So we started looking at parasite infection in the rural Southern US mm. uh, and chose this location for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, there have been really high rates of infection there in the past. Yeah. As actually, Kara was talking about with this you know, this podcast episode, they talked about this mm-hmm. and with hookworms specifically. But there hasn't been much research done in the past 30 years. People just kind of assume like it went away, but there's no actual evidence of that, especially because we still have the same climatic conditions like the heat, the humidity, the moisture that the parasites like. So, yeah, that's been interesting. So, we, we go down there, and it's funny because there definitely is a generational gap. Because we, when we talk to people, the grandparents, well, you know, the older generation definitely remembers like getting tested for hookworm when they were kids. And they're like, yeah, we wondered why that stopped. But all the younger people are kind of like very confused and unfamiliar with this. So, it's been interesting. We did go down for one field season in 2019 before COVID started. We went to the Mississippi Delta to do some preliminary work. And so, we did find very small sample just for forming connections but we did find that there were really high rates of intestinal inflammation in the kids we were oh. working with. The nurse reported that there was high rates of H. pylori bacterial infections, and that's also an inflammatory microbe. Uh, so we didn't see signs of definitive helminth infection with our microscope work, but the sample quality was not the best uh, compared to what we're doing in, in Ecuador. So we're doing some follow-up fecal DNA analysis in Katie Amato's lab in Northwestern right now mm-hmm. to look for other types of parasites oh, that cool. way. So then as soon as it's safe to do so because we're planning to go back this summer and that obviously didn't happen so hopefully next summer the summer after we're going to go back to Mississippi to revisit the communities and share these preliminary results and hopefully collect some follow-up data and then we want to visit Alabama uh, where there have been some new studies coming out indicating that there might be some hookworm in certain areas there and then we want to really add a measure of the microbiome to this work since the microbiome is sharing this gut environment with these helmets that we're looking at. uh, So they're sharing this environment and also certain elements of the microbiome have been shown to regulate immune activity as well. So we kind of want to expand the picture a little bit and look at it more holistically, these interactions in child health and immune development.
1: Wow. As you could probably tell, I was getting excited there when you mentioned the South and was going to volunteer my legion of poop collectors in my lab. It sounds like you're set and vouch for the humidity down here, which apparently you already know about. But yeah, that yeah. Sounds... yeah, we
2: we spent August 2019 in the Mississippi Delta. So that was, yeah, that was very humid,
0: very hot, but it was, I mean, it was a wonderful experience cool. I hadn't been down in the south for that long. So that it's was a little it was rough cool. with all these projects and all this work going on. And I know you're starting like kind of halfway through a year, but are you going to be accepting grad student applications for the coming fall?
2: Yeah, definitely open to it. So I'm working, you know, focusing on transitioning and getting set up there, but definitely interested in accepting grad students in the next application cycle or two, especially when we can get back to the field and actually have some work for them to do there. If
1: anyone out there thinks they're a good poop collector, <laughs> what else, what else will they be doing? I'm, I'm making, That's all they need. I'm That's the only
0: a, requirement. <laughs> come on. <laughs> I mean,
2: okay, to be fair, to be fair, we also I've also collected a lot of saliva samples to look at hormone levels we, and yeah. uh, dried blood spots to look at these immune markers I've been alluding to. So right that's the type of analysis. So if you it doesn't have to be poop. There are other biomarkers available.
1: But it can be poop.
2: It can be poop.
1: So of course we end with the fun. The, what do you do when you're not collecting poop, et cetera?
2: <laughs> um, yeah, so I've already mentioned podcasts. I listen to a lot of podcasts, but I also... Really, my outlet is exercise and especially running. I love running and also reading. But lately I've been putting those together. So I've been listening to books while going on long runs. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's a good way to do it. And then also uh, baking. I love baking. I actually worked in a bakery for a couple of years in college. So that's also stress baking is definitely a thing that I do.
0: Work at a bakery in South Bend, Mishawaka or home home? No, just, just when I was home over the okay.
2: summers, I would do wedding cake prep. Well, it's because wedding season. So, Nothing um, but yeah, it, it wedding was a lot cake. of fun. It actually, it, prepped, it prepared me well for lab work because when you're working in the bakery, you go into they call it baking days, which is a lot like when you're in a lab and you just kind of get sucked into your assay. A lot of similarities.
1: Pipetting is very similar to the cake decorating. <laughs> so, yeah, the frosting. Oh,
2: yeah. yeah, yeah. So
1: what, what are you, when you're listening and reading, what have you most recently listened to?
2: Listening to, I've, I've got into this for running. This is really good. There's a platform, I guess, called uh, Graphic Audio where they take books and it's voice actors and music and sound effects. So it's like <laughs> listening to a movie. So it's really engaging <laughs> for like when you're exercising. So they have a lot of a lot of like fantasy books. So I love Brandon Sanderson. So I've been listening yeah. to some of his books like while I'm running. And it's really entertaining. So recommend oh, that if so, what's to that.
1: what's the platform called again?
2: Yeah. Uh, graphic audio. Right. And their their slogan <laughs> is a movie in your head, which it kind of is.
0: I'm kind I of like that. This. Yeah, this Literally, is why we do the podcast, so we get book
1: <laughs> ideas and new software apps for our downtime. Well, thank you, Teresa, for absolutely everything,
0: mm.
1: not just today, but in general, and Jesus, I think I'm so happy that we we interviewed you toward the end, because I'd be so intimidated to be sending you my rambling babbles to be editing as though you work for us. We should be working for you. Yeah, you have all the expertise in the world. But it's been it's, it's been it's been a pleasure. And I'm so happy that you're part of our team and that we get to continue to have these conversations at meetings and such going forward.
2: Me too. It's been I've loved working
0: with you guys. Thank you for the opportunity. It's been such a joy i'm glad you enjoyed it and it's also a good promotion for any future producers that we might need but yeah thank you so much this was i anytime i get to bring up that hookworm podcast i am as happy as i could be so thank you for allowing I'm so me glad you've heard it i and love I get, that podcast i got to talk about poop so much
2: poop everyone today. wins
0: <laughs> till all, win. right. all right teresa thank you so so
2: much it's lovely to see you both thank Wait, you
1: did we turn on record this time okay good
0: carrot. <laughs> <or carabans? laughs> Ha ha ha!